If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Galatians chapter number 5. Galatians chapter 5. <clears throat> and I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to do something I'm really, 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 I'm, I'm not nervous at all anymore to preach. Maybe I ought to be. <laughs> but uh, I'm going to do something this morning that makes me really, really nervous, all right? There's a song I've been singing all week because it ties right in with what I want to preach today. It covers both subjects. I grew up listening to my mom and her two sisters sing this song in harmony. And a lot of times they sang it on days like today, Patriotic Day is Memorial Day, 4th of July. Um, I'm not going to do it justice. I'm certainly no Ivan Parker. And I'm not going to sing it like my mom and dad. Y'all don't. Y'all never asked me to sing anything, but <laughs> the old ship of Zion. And the only reason I do that is because you like to see me turn red in the face when I'm singing it. But Chance likes my singing, so if nobody else in here gets uh, <laughs> applause, me Champ, Chance will listen. All right. And I don't. I'm not even sure I can start it on the right note so that I can finish it. I just want you to listen to the message, and if you know the song, you feel free to sing it along with me. In New York Harbor stands a lady with a torch raised to the sky. And all who see her knows she stands for Liberty for you and I. I'm so proud to be called an American, to be named with the brave and the free. I will honor our flag and our trust in God and the Statue of Liberty. On lonely Golgotha stood a cross with my Lord raised to the sky. And all who kneel there live forever as all the saints can testify. I'm so glad to be called a Christian. To be named with a ransomed and whole As the statue liberates the citizen So the cross liberates the soul Oh, the cross is my statue of liberty. It was there that my soul was set free. Unashamed, I'll proclaim that a rugged cross 
is my statue of liberty. I knew I was going to start it higher than I needed to. I practiced all morning starting it low. Still didn't do it. <clears throat> Galatians chapter 5 verse 1. I had intended to just continue the Vice and Virtue series this morning, but this verse kept ringing in my ear all week long, along with the 13th verse of the same chapter. But I'm just going to read one verse, and we're going to hone in on it this morning. I, I, Galatians chapter 5 verse 1 says this, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Now, I don't have any intention whatsoever of twisting this verse out of its context and trying to make it say something that it doesn't say, all right? I know full well and understand and appreciate and, and I, want you to, I want you to understand and appreciate and know there is no doubt whatsoever that this passage is speaking of our spiritual liberty that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not talking about our national liberty as Americans. It's talking about the, the liberty that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. How, he, how has he set us free? He set us free from the penalty of sin. We don't owe a debt because He paid our debt. And the Bible declares that we are justified fully um, by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, when, when, and, and this is remarkable to me, that when God looks at my life, when He looks, if you, if you have been born again, if you've placed your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, then God looks at my life just as if I had never sinned. I am justified fully in the sight of God. My sin debt is paid Past, present, future, I am covered by His blood. Justification is a wonderful thing. The Bible says, I have peace with God because of my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not at war with me. I'm no longer His enemy. He is for me. He's not against me. He has set me free. Jesus has set me free, has set you free from the penalty of sin. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's what He's done for us. Not only has He set us free from the penalty of sin, He set us free from the power of sin. Read Romans chapter 6. Uh, the Word of God says that um, by His, by his um, life in us, by His indwelling Holy Spirit, and by the Word of God, He sanctifies us daily. By the Spirit and by the Word, He's transforming us into the image of Christ. Now, I'll tell you that there are some days that I don't look a whole lot like Jesus and I don't act a whole lot like Jesus. Um, but on those days, I am convicted of my sin. That's the work of the Spirit. I am reminded of His Word and I have a desire to put off this old man and put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And I, I, I'm not where I want to be. Um, I'm not even, I wouldn't even say I'm where I ought to be, but I'm not where I used to be. He's transforming me from the inside out. He's, spiritually, I am completely and fully justified. In my mind, in my, in my soul, He is working on me. And then, not only has He freed us from sin's penalty and broken sin's power, um, but He's also promised us freedom forever from sin's presence. That's what glorification is all about. We're glorified. One day we will be glorified when we stand in His presence in heaven above, free from sin, 
for all, for all eternity. The Bible says that there is no sin that will ever enter in to that glorious kingdom. So we have freedom in Christ from sin's penalty, from sin's power, and ultimately from sin's presence. And what Paul talks about in the book of Galatians, in fact, this one verse probably could give you, would give you a summary of the whole book of Galatians. Of Galatians. He is encouraging the Galatian church to stand fast in the freedom that Christ has given to them. And, um, and, and primarily what he talks about in the Galatian church is that they're free from the law. That is, they don't, uh, there's no reason um, to force circumcision. There's no reason to force the dietary laws. There's no reason for us to live under the bondage to the law. Um, uh, the Bible, it goes in, in verse 13 of the same chapter and says, Don't use your liberty, though, as an occasion to serve the flesh. Um, all the law is fulfilled in one word, love your neighbor as yourself. By love, he said, serve one another. But Christ has set us free from the bondage of the law. And what the law could not do for us, Christ has done in us. And that is that he has, giving, uh, he has given us the liberty to live abundantly in him and to live abundantly for him. And Paul warned the Galatian believers of their need to stand fast, of their need to stand fast in the liberty um, that Christ had made them free. There was a danger in the Galatian church of them trying to add something to what Jesus had already done. And that Jesus was not enough. And, and he argued from the first few verses of Galatians that somebody is preaching a different gospel to you than the gospel that I've preached. And Paul said, let him be accursed. And he, he, he spent the whole book telling them, you've got all you need in Christ. You have all you need um, in the Lord Jesus Christ. But he's warning them of a very real danger of them falling from their steadfastness in their faith. And I, you look up the word stand fast. It literally means to persevere. It means to keep on keeping on, keep believing, keep clinging, keep learning of, keep leaning on uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. Stand fast in that liberty that he has set you free. Stand fast for that liberty um, that Christ has set you free to live. And so the very real danger for them and for us is that we get entangled again and are placed back in bondage. Spiritually, there's a very real danger. They were for the Galatian church that instead of standing fast in the liberty of Christ, they get tangled up again in bondage. Now for the Galatians, it was the bondage of the law. For the Corinthian church, it was the bondage of, of, of sin. Um, when, when Peter talked about in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 20, about people getting entangled again therein and overcome. He was talking about sin. There's a danger. Even though Christ has set us free from the penalty, He set us free from the power, and He will set us free from the presence, there is a real danger of us as believers uh, getting entangled again in the law or getting entangled in too much liberality that causes us to serve our flesh instead of serving each other and the Lord Jesus Christ. So let me make a little bit of a transition. On this day, it's not often that, that July the 4th falls on a Sunday. It does happen occasionally. It's happened several times in my ministry here. But on this date, 245 years ago, 56 men from 13 colonies put their name on a document that we know as the Declaration of Independence. Now, I'm going to tell you, we're living 
in a in a day and age of patriotic illiteracy where people don't know what we have they don't know what has been given to us and it's worth our time this morning I think to go back to that day and let me read to you that document it's not that long and you read it on the screen with me I'm gonna, I want you to understand why we as a nation were founded it begins like this we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive to these ends, or of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Prudence indeed will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes. And accordingly... All experience has shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. And then there's one of the most important buts of that Declaration of Independence. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism. It is their right, it is their duty, to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. If you read the remainder of the Declaration of Independence, you'll see the, grievance, the grievances that was laid out against the government that had enslaved the settlers of this nation for so long. On this day, at the signing of that document, the United States of America was born. And there isn't any doubt whatsoever in my mind that the providence of God was upon it. There's a large majority of the men that signed that Declaration of Independence and later the Constitution who were ordained ministers of the gospel. It was made clear from the very beginning that, the, that their primary pursuit was the ability to worship God according to the freedoms of their own consciences, not the dictates of the king or the Church of England. With their words and with their lives, our founding fathers secured our nation's liberty and for the, as long as they live, worked to sustain that liberty. And I believe that our founding fathers would tell us today that it was a fight worth fighting. That it was a freedom worth keeping. I also believe they would tell us today, using some of the same words that Paul used to the Galatian church regarding their spiritual liberty, that regarding our political liberty, we need to stand fast. Persevere. Persevere in and for the liberty that we have been given. 
Now, we're not a pure democracy. I promise you, I'm going to go back to the text in a few minutes. But this is what this is. Um, James said, this is one of my favorite holidays of the year. It is mine too. We celebrate our birth as a nation, as a free and independent people. We've been able to sit in church pews for 245 years as a free nation and worship God according to the dictates of our own conscience. We're not a pure democracy. In fact, we're a constitutional republic. If they would teach this um, in history, sociology, whatever they need to teach it in, our, we, our nation would I begin, begin to, to, to regain a grasp on what liberty really means. But as a constitutional republic, we are governed as a representative democracy. We're not a pure democracy. And I don't think a pure democracy works well. I don't think our founding fathers thought a pure democracy works well. Um, in a pure democracy, uh, it, it can become um, so overbalanced. That if somebody said it like this, a pure democracy is two wolves and a lamb deciding what they want to eat for dinner. But, that, but we were protected against that by a representative democracy. There's a man by the name of Alexander Frazier Titler. I actually listened to the pronunciation of that name online because I was pronouncing it different. Titler. T-Y-T-L-E-R. He was a Scottish historian, a professor of universal history and of Greek and Roman antiquities at a college in Edinburgh. He said that the average age of any democratic form of government is around 200 years. I saw somebody post this morning that we're a relatively young nation. As far as democracies are concerned, we're a relatively old nation. We have, we have gone beyond that average lifespan of 200 years. Mr. Titler studied ancient democracies. And in studying those ancient democracies, he, he developed a pattern or stages of their development and their decline. And, and his studies have, uh, are, are known today as the Titler Cycle. And I want to just take a few minutes and consider this this morning, and I promise you I'm going to come back to a spiritual application, but I really want you to see where we are as a nation. We began as a nation in bondage. Even though people had fled England, had fled Great Britain, and come to settle the new world as it was known then, they were still very much under the hand of the king. And the more that they tried to exercise their freedoms, the more they were oppressed in their freedom. You read the rest of the Declaration of Independence, and you can see all kind of awful grievances that were filed against the king. But that Tidler cycle, is, is the, is he has traced the history of, of, of several different ancient democracies and shows how they rose to prominence and then how they fell um, into decline. We began in bondage, from bondage to faith. That's the first step in a, in a democracy. And from 1620, when, when before, those pil before those pilgrims ever got off of that Mayflower, and before they ever set foot, they formed a compact that was rooted, rooted and grounded in the Word of God. It became the early colony's constitution of sorts. And the primary reason for that compact was for the advance 
for the cause of Christ and for the advance of His kingdom. They, they had a religious zeal to read God's Word, to study God's Word, to apply God's Word to their own hearts and lives. From bondage to faith. Now they, they practiced that as much as was possible in them for over 100 years. From 1620 to the, to the late 1700s, um, they did all that they could to escape that bondage of the crown. And then in 1775, they began in earnest um, to pursue their liberty. And with the courage that, I mean, listen, this is a, these are poor, um, um, they're, they're poor, they're poorly equipped. They, they look a whole lot like the nation of Israel. When they, when they came out of the bondage of Egypt, it didn't look like they had what it would take to earn their own freedom. But with, with the courage of their faith welling up in them, they declared their independence and began a revolutionary war against the crown. Now, we got some outside help for which we're grateful for. But by and large, it was the faith and the courage of our founding fathers who rose up who won the Revolutionary War and who spent the next few years after that coming up with a constitutional form of government that included a Bill of Rights that enumerated the rights of the people to do certain things, the first of which included the freedom of religion. And that document was ratified in 1787. From courage to liberty, from, a lib from liberty to abundance. By God's grace, you just look at the history of our nation. By God's grace, um, we quickly went from that place of, of courage and winning um, to liberty to a place of absolute abundance and prosperity. Look at the history of our nation. God's grace um, gave us abundance, gave us prosperity. Um, very soon, um, America rose to be one of the world's superpowers. Wealthy prosperous, independent. Unfortunately, that cycle takes a downhill turn from there. And you can see in his cycle, actually, if you look at the cycle, most just have eight points. There's one that's, that's kind of coupled right there with selfishness, uh, with um, abundance in this graphic, and that is selfishness. Um, somehow abundance feeds a greed, and a self-centeredness that turns us inward. Um, in the late 1800s, in fact, you, I've done a lot of history reading and all this, and there was some good stuff. In the late 1800s, right after the Civil War, an entitlement mentality began to creep into our nation. And, and it, began, it began under some good terms, and it began under the terms of taking care of some of the Union Civil War soldiers who had been injured in battle and their families that had been left fatherless and widowed. There's always a danger when the government becomes involved in entitlement. Number one, it's the responsibilities of families to take care of each other. According to the Word of God, it is. And, and when a family can't take care of itself, then the responsibility is handed down to the church to take care of the members of that body. It's, it's laid out for us. Paul wrote Timothy and said, if there's a widow that's a widow indeed, and there are qualifications for what constituted a widow, 
then if she doesn't have a nephew, if she doesn't have family, if she doesn't have somebody take care of her, then the church has a responsibility to step up. But because of that self-centeredness and that abundance, that selfishness kind of turned, and we began to, to secede some of our responsibilities over to the, to the government, and we became complacent. And that entitlement mentality began to creep in from complacency to apathy. And, and, and in that place, that's where uh, personal responsibility begins to be laid aside. It's not my fault. It's not my responsibility. This is not for me to do. We become apathetic, and that's where the government really begins to step in, from apathy to dependence. I ain't trying to upset anybody this morning. Over half of our nation today is dependent upon the government for some of the basic necessities of life. Over half of our nation is dependent on our government for some of life's basic necessities. Now, if God gives me, God gives me liberty, I'm going to preach next week on, on, on laziness or sloth is the word that's often used. Because I'm going to be very frank with you. A huge portion of that entitlement in our nation today is not given to people who can't work. It's given to people who won't work. From apathy, from complacency to apathy, from apathy to dependence, from dependence to bondage. The cycle completes itself. The more dependent we become on the government to care for us, the more in bondage we become to that government. And I want you to understand, we're already way down this road to the point that our government is now beginning to tell us what we can't say, where we can't go, what we can't do. Listen, 2020 ought to point us, we ought to look back at 2020 and we ought to understand, and it's still... I understand the need for precaution, common sense. I get all that. But last year, liberty was encroached upon in our nation in a way that it never has been before. From dependence to bondage, that point of no return. Now, where do you think we are in that cycle? Where, where does it look like we are? And I know we could, you, know, you can hit all over that circle, but I really believe right now that we're probably somewhere between that, that selfishness and dependence cycle. Maybe even up as far as complacent. Because honestly, I don't know, I don't see a lot of folks that, that seem to care how far we have slipped. Is it possible to stall the cycle? Is it possible to, to back it up, so to speak? And, and this is the thought, and I'm going to bring this back around to, to the spiritual dimension because I don't want this just to be a political, I don't want this just to be about the United States of America. 
but I do want it to be about the United States of America and the Christian faith that exists within the United States. Listen to me, I'm going to be a Christian wherever I am. If, if tomorrow our nation falls like Israel fell to Babylon, I'm going to stand like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stood in a strange land. I'm going to sing the Lord's song. That flag will never fall. That kingdom will never end. My primary allegiance and loyalty is to the kingdom of Christ. But we've been given the liberty to be the gospel-sending nation of the world. And I don't care what any other preachers. I'm, quite frankly, I'm tired of seeing these pansy, lily-lipped guys that say, y'all not even mention the United States of America in the pulpit. They don't want a flag in the building. They don't want to sing a patriotic song in the building. Listen to me, we could not have sent the gospel around the world had we not had the freedom that we enjoyed. America has sent 75% of the world's missionaries to foreign mission fields. Look it up. We have been by far um, the light of the world in sending the gospel to foreign lands. We don't have it all together, but God blessed America, and America took that spiritual liberty um, that God has given to us, and we planted churches on every corner, and we planted churches around the world. It is about our, our political liberty connected with our spiritual liberty. So when I, th when I think about that cycle and where we are, it, it, it frightens me for my kids' sake. It frightens me for the sake of the... I know that the gospel will be here until Jesus comes. But you do understand God can take it out of our hands and put it in somebody else's hands just as easily as He took it out of Israel's hands and put it in the church's hands? I know that I'm a Christian in large part because I was born in a Christian nation uh, in a Christian home, raised in a Christian church. I want my grandkids and my great-grandkids and the great-great-grandkids that I may never see if the Lord tarries is coming to have the same opportunity that I had. I don't want them to have to depend on a missionary from a foreign land to come and share the gospel with them. I want them to grow up in a land that they can sit in a church house any and every Sunday morning that they choose to and worship God with the liberty of their own conscience. So can we stop the cycle? Can we back up the cycle? And I would submit to you this morning that the only way for us to stop the direction that we're headed is to restart where bondage always ends, and that is with faith. If you think we're at that level of complacency, then let's skip the apathy, let's skip the dependence, let's skip the bondage, and let's jump to faith. If we're at selfishness, let's, let's skip all that follows that and let's jump back to faith. Let's restart. The whole um, representative democracy process, beginning with our faith as the church, beginning with our faith as Christians. And, I, and I'm going to take you all the way back to the text where Paul said, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ has set you free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Are we guilty of forfeiting our liberty in Christ or of persevering in it and persevering for it? 
And here's what I want to do. And this may seem awful strange to you, but this has been on my mind all week. Can we take that, that toddler cycle and apply it to the Christian faith? Here's what that looks like to me. We take our experience as believers and apply that cycle to it. From bondage to faith. When you began your life in Christ, did that life in Christ begin after you were wearied by the bondage of sin? It did for me. Man, sin wore me out. Sin left me without hope. Sin left me guilty. Sin left me ashamed. Sin left me um, doing everything I could to get hold of the train wreck of my life and of my marriage and of my family and of my self-respect. And when I was totally wore out with sin, I bowed myself at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ and said, i got to have some help. I need to be liberated from my sin. And on that night, he set me free. On that night, he set me free. And I remember those early days. You remember those early days of, of, your, of your Christian faith? How that courage rose up in you, and you did battle every day with the enemy. I'm not talking about the friends that were around you. I'm talking about in the early days of your salvation, you fought against your own flesh. You fought against worldly ideas. You fought against the devil every time he came your way. That's what faith does. It rises up in us as courage. And we get up every morning and decide, today I'm going to crucify the flesh. Today I'm going to stand not with the world. I'm going to stand against the ways of the world. Today I'm going to do battle with the devil every time he comes to tempt me and to try me. That's courage. And then tell me, early in your experience with Christ, did that courage to get up every day and do battle with those three enemies give you victory? Sure it did. And I don't mean you won every battle. The, the early days of our Christian lives were filled with courage that brought us liberty, freedom, um, life abundant as we learned about and leaned into Jesus. And those early days of our Christian life were marked by peace, joy, righteousness, because that is the abundant life that Jesus came to give us. We were living in the kingdom we were experiencing the blessings of the kingdom. But then somewhere along the way, we cool off, don't we? I mean, everything's going our way. We're feeling it. We're experiencing it. And then what do we, what do, we do? We get away from our daily quiet time. We get away from His Word. We get away from prayer. We get away from church. We get away from the fellowship of the saints. And we begin to wallow in our abundance. I'm convinced of this. I, I hate to say this, but sometimes I almost want to pray that God would rip people's prosperity from them. Pros listen, 
Adversity has never been the biggest enemy that the church or the Christian has had to stand against. Never has been. It was not even Israel's biggest enemy. You know what God promised Israel? You're going to go into a land. And when you go into this land and begin to drive the people out, you don't have to worry about it. I'm going to fight for you. You're going to stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. That's what you're going to see. Jericho was the first city that fell. All they had to do was shout victory and the walls fell. That's the victory of faith. But God warned them. You go read it for yourself in Deuteronomy. When you go into this land, you're going to find cities that you didn't build, houses that you didn't build, gardens that you didn't plant. You're going to find yourself um, in a land that is flowing with milk and honey. You're going to have more than you ever dreamed of. But you better, you better be careful lest you forget the God who brought you to that place. He goes on to say, I believe it's in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 18. Don't you know that it is the Lord who gives you power to get wealth? It is the Lord that has blessed you to walk in this liberty and in this abundance that you enjoy. But in that prosperity, you better be careful. Or you'll make things of this world your God. You'll worship the gifts more than the giver. You'll crave the blessings more than the one who blessed you. It happened to Israel. I'm going to tell you, it's happening to us. As a, as a nation, it's happening to us as the church. From complacency to apathy, do we even care that the abundant life we once had is being lost. Do you even care that you don't have the peace that you used to have? Do you even care that you don't have the joy that you used to have? Do you even care that you don't stand out from the world like you used to stand out from the world? Do you even care that you've walked away from your first love and fell in love with some things that you never should have fell in love with to begin with? Complacency to apathy. Apathy to dependence. And I'm going to be honest with you, there's a lot of Christian folks today that are dependent on somebody else to nurture their spiritual life. They don't have a daily devotional life. They don't have a daily prayer life. They're absolutely dependent upon somebody else. And, and I'm, a, I'm here to tell you, if you just come into me one time a week to be fed, you're going to starve to death spiritually. I, I promise you, you don't go seven days without eating physical food. We're going to nurture these bodies. But if we're not spending the same amount of effort nurturing our souls, that's why. We're finding ourselves caught up again in bondage. See, I see, I see Christian people that have walked through those baptismal waters and made a profession of faith in Christ that lived on fire for Jesus. Getting caught back up in the sins of this world. Getting tangled back up in the, in the things that Christ had set them free from. Now, I'm, I'm, listen to me. The Bible says that we as believers have power over sin. We don't have to live in it. We don't have to live in it. 
We don't have to give in to it. Temptation is not a sin. Yielding to temptation is a sin. When we choose to sin, it is because we are drawn away with our own lust and enticed and sin. Uh, when, it is, uh, uh, when, when that lust is conceived, it brings forth sin. Sin, when it's finished, brings forth death. And we're drawn away in our abundance, in our, in our self-absorption. And we get drugged back into that bondage. Where are you in that cycle? Where, where are you in your Christian, where are you in your walk with Christ in that circle, in that cycle? I'll tell you where I want to stay. Faith, courage, liberty. I just want to hang out there. I think with liberty always comes abundance, but that's as far as I want to go. I want to stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ has made me free. I don't want to get tangled up in the yoke of bondage to the law. I don't want to get tangled up again in the bondage of sin. Where are you in the circle? Where do you want to be in the circle? What can you do to get back there? I say this, go back to faith. Go back to Jesus. Fall in love with him. All over again, afresh, anew. Recognize he's the one that bought you with his own blood. You can't improve upon a life with Jesus. Our, our, our representative democracy is dying. Would you agree with that? Do you? Amen. Oh, me, our nation is dying. If you can't see that, you're blind. I don't know how, I don't know how quickly that cycle is going to run its course. But I can tell you, I believe the reason our representative democracy is dying is because the church in the middle of her is complacent and apathetic. I don't think we'd ever reach this place if the church had been what she should have been. And, and there's a real danger for us in thinking that we're going to stop this cycle with a political solution. And can I tell you, we won't. It ain't going to happen politically. Now, I got my wants for the White House. I got my want. In fact, the Bible tells us when godly, when righteous men are in authority over us, the people rejoice. When the wicked bear rule, the people mourn. I understand the need for righteous and godly people in authority, but can I tell you that it don't, it don't matter if Solomon is the king. It don't matter if David's the king. If the heart of the people have turned against the God who gave us this great nation that we live in, if we don't turn back to him, we're not going to be rescued. He told Solomon, if I shut up heaven that it doesn't rain, if I bring a judgment upon you because you've turned away from me, if my people which are called by my name, that's the church, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and will heal their land.
I believe it was through King Asa, one of the good kings. He said, if the Lord is with you while you be with him, but if you forsake him, he will forsake you. He's speaking to a nation. He's speaking to Israel, the people of God within that nation. He said, you better not forsake God because God, I'm here to tell you, God will forsake our nation if we don't turn back to him. And we can't wait for the lost and dying world to turn to him before we turn to him. We can't be dependent on a political solution. I, I, I think that the only way to save our nation is for the church to fall on our face in repentant prayer. Because the next stage of bondage has already set itself against us. You know full well they're trying to silence the pulpit in America today. Listen, they shut down one of the largest churches in our nation in California last year. There are churches that were fined $10,000 every Sunday that they gathered. Pastors are being sued for hate speech because they're preaching the Word of God. Denominations are being severed because of sin, because of theological liberalism. If we're going to preserve our liberty politically, we've got to come back to Christ. We've got to stand fast in Jesus. Now, I, I, you say, preacher, this ain't much of a celebration for July 4th. I'm telling you, I don't know how many more July 4th celebrations we're going to have. I know I used a spiritual text this morning to talk about a secular matter, but I think they're interwoven. Now I'm going to use a secular text to point us to a spiritual solution. How about that? Abraham Lincoln, on the brink of the Civil War, knew that our nation's future hung in a very fragile balance. And proclaimed the first national day of prayer and fasting with these words. We have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven, but we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. We have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intox intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace. Too proud to pray to the God that made us it behooves us then to humble ourselves before the offended power to confess our national sins 
and to pray for clemency and forgiveness. I looked at that prayer several times this week and thinking about how we as the church can help our nation reset itself. There's some things in his proclamation that I think we as Christians can apply to our lives individually and to the church corporately. There's a pattern in that proclamation. I'm not going to go back through and point out every phrase. There's a pattern in his proclamation. And that pattern is this. It is only by his grace that we've been liberated. It is only by his grace that we have been liberated from our enemies. It is only by his grace that we have been blessed to be abundant, to be powerful. It's only by his grace that we have eternal life as Christians. The second thing that I see in in Lincoln's proclamation is that by our hands, we're incapable of saving ourselves. Self-sufficiency in the spiritual realm will destroy us. We are incapable of saving ourselves from eternal damnation. We are incapable of saving ourselves from sin and the power of sin. We're incapable of resurrecting ourselves from the dead. We are absolutely, totally dependent upon the Lord Jesus Christ for all of those things. The last thing that Lincoln said was, we need to bow our heads, confess our ingratitude, give God thanks for His blessings, beg Him for forgiveness of our sin, and ask Him to give us the strength to stand again. So while we celebrate this political Independence Day, let's confess our spiritual dependence on the Lord Jesus Christ. We can't do it without Him. We won't survive without Him. He set us free, and only He can keep us free from here to eternity. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free. Be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Actually, I didn't know this. It just came to my mind this week, and I was doing a little bit of studying about the monarchy that we came out of. And they still say it to this day, God save the king, or God save the queen. Whoever the highest authority is in the land in Great Britain, England, they, they say... It's one of the, the end of the conclusion of some of their prayers. God save the king. God save the queen. There's actually a biblical precedent for that. Israel, when they had good kings, when Israel was under the leadership of righteous men, you can find it in Scripture. They would say the same thing. God save the king. God save the king. We don't have a king. Not politically. But I tell you what, we ought to be on our faces saying, God save the Constitution. We ought to be on our faces saying, God save the Republic. We ought to be on our faces saying, God save the church in the midst of this nation. And we ought to even be more specific than that. 
Say, God, save me. A sinner. Stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ has set us free. Let's stand together. Father, you know I could have stood up here this morning and just exalted all the good things about our nation. Surely, in spite of all of our problems right now, we still, God, are so very, very, very blessed. If I'd have been in North Korea or China or many other nations of the world this morning and stood in a pulpit and say what I've said this morning, I'd probably spend the remainder of my life locked up in a prison somewhere. Separated from my family. There are pastors that are suffering that right now, this morning. So I'm grateful for the liberty to share what I've shared. And I know full well that day could soon come to an end. But I pray that you'd help us to stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free. Lord, I, I honestly don't even know how to give an invitation, but I'm more convinced than ever that if we're ever going to have a political restart, that we're going to have to have a spiritual revival and awakening. And we can't sit around and wait on somebody else to lead the way for that. That's got to start in my heart first. It's got to start in my home first. It's got to start in your church. God, help us to stop waiting for revival to break out somewhere. Let it break out in us. May our love for the Lord Jesus Christ and our devotion and loyalty to Him be refreshed, revived, renewed. May His cause take priority over every other. May His glory be our story. Thank you, Lord, for this Independence Day. And I pray, Lord, that we'd never be the same. That we'd never be able to sit down again. But that we'd stand fast. <laughs>